Well, I'd like to begin this morning as we uh, start the Advent season to ask you this opening question. How many of the four Gospels mention the manger? Now, perhaps that's a fairly easy question today, and you may very well know it's only one. It's the Gospel of Luke. But then, as we continue to think about that, I want to ask you what might be a little more difficult of a question. How many times does Luke mention the manger? And the answer is three times. And they are all in Luke chapter 2. In verse 7, Luke tells us that Mary laid the babe in a manger... In verse 12, the angel said to the shepherds, This will be a sign for you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then in verse 16, when they arrived, they found the baby Jesus lying in a manger. Now, if Luke mentions the manger three times in one chapter, would you agree with me that that's pretty important? I think we would all agree it is. In fact, what did uh, the angel say to the shepherds? It is a sign. It's a sign. Uh, Listen to this insight from Pastor John Piper. Listen to what he says. Every baby in Bethlehem was wearing swaddling clothes. That is not the sign. The sign is the manger. No other king anywhere in the world was lying in a feeding trough. Find him, and you find the king of kings, and you will know something, something utterly crucial about his kingship. And so that leads us to this question, what is that something? What is the meaning of the manger? Well, this morning, as we open our Christmas series in Luke chapter 2, We want to come to that very issue. What is the meaning of the manger? And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke is the third gospel in your New Testament. Find the New Testament in the chair Bible in front of you and turn to the third gospel. And we want to begin by looking this morning at Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. Let's just take a moment and let's pray together. Blessed Lord, uh, thank you for what this season means to us. We never get tired of it, Lord. The meaning of it never grows old. And we thank you that in these details, which seem so insignificant as we read through the story, really are packed with wonderful meaning that you have recorded for us so that we might know something about our Savior, something about us, something about what it means for Him to be King of our lives, and something to cause us just to rejoice and also to follow You in the way that these narratives call us to. So guide our thinking and our understanding today and help us to follow Jesus in the way that He would have us to. We do love Him and thank You most importantly that He first loved us in His name. Amen. Well, let me read the narrative for you, and then we want to do two things. We want to notice that God is directing this narrative. 
This is all the hand of God bringing Jesus to the manger. And then we want to ask, okay, if this is a sign, what is the meaning for us? And so we'll do those two things in the message. But let's read as we follow the narrative in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor in Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now as we begin, we want to see that God is directing these events. We are not just reading history from a human standpoint. We are reading history that God in His sovereign control brought about. And there are a number of things we notice. Number one, God moved mighty Rome to bring Jesus to the manger. Uh, The first thing we see about all these events, as I mentioned, is this is not just unfolding on a human level. I think we all agree with Pastor Warren Wiersbe who says Augustus Caesar was ruling, but God was the one who was in charge. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. And so we have to ask, why was this the right time for Jesus to be born? Well, according to verse 1, Augustus Caesar was the Roman emperor. And you may know a number of things about him. He was famous for the Pax Romana. Here's a map of the Roman Empire at its height under Caesar Augustus. And Pax Romana was a phrase that meant Roman peace. And it lasted for 200 years throughout the entire Roman Empire. And as you can see on the map, it included little Judea, where Jesus was born, in the city of Bethlehem. Now I want you to notice a number of things that are true about Augustus Caesar. Notice some things here. He boasted that he had found Rome a city of bricks and he left it a city of marble. In 31 BCE, the Pax Romana began. This was a peace that lasted until 100 AD CE. During this time, the Roman legions did not participate in any major conflicts, and the people of the Roman Empire lived and prospered. Would you agree with me there was no better time for Christ to be born? And no better time for the message of Christ to be spread throughout the civilized world. But friends, this morning there's some more that we need to see here. Augustus was the first Caesar to be given that title. And Augustus meant holy or revered until this Caesar, Augustus, was reserved for the Roman gods alone. 
But under Augustus Caesar, strides were made toward making the Caesars gods. Now what is so interesting is at the very same time Luke was writing Luke chapter 2, some cities in the Roman Empire had adopted Augustus' birthday, the 23rd of September, as their New Year's. He was being hailed as Savior. In fact, one inscription in the Roman world that has been discovered from that period of time called Augustus the Savior of the whole world. Say, does God know the right time to send the real Savior? Does He? God is behind every detail that we are reading here. There's a verse in Proverbs that as I thought about this, I could not help but share with you this morning. Notice what Proverbs 21.1 says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. And if there is ever a place where we see the truth of that reality, it is right here when the Lord takes the heart of the most powerful man in the world at that time and moves that heart so that He sends out a decree that all the world should be taxed and Jesus is moved in the womb of His mother to the manger. What an amazing thing this is. Now Luke has more for us as he gives us this wonderful birth narrative. Secondly, he tells us that God fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in order to bring Jesus to the manger. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, as I read earlier through verse 7, you may have noticed that four times the word registered is used. This was a census to count people for the purpose of taxing them. But what is interesting is the Jews had a custom that Luke mentions in verse 3. He says in verse 3, they all went to be registered, and notice the final phrase, each to his own town. I want you to listen to some insight on this custom from uh, my old professor, Daryl Bach. Listen to what he writes. Journeying to one's ancestral home fits nicely with Jewish custom. For Jews, an ancestral registration would be a most natural way to sign up for taxes. So each one travels to his own city to register And Joseph heads for the Davidic city of Bethlehem. But, look at this map of the journey. And think about these details. Bethlehem is 90 miles from Nazareth. 
As you can see, even from this relief map, it's rugged terrain. It's winter time. We don't know that Jesus was born exactly on the 25th of December, but he was born in the winter time. And then, consider this, verse 5 tells us that Mary is in the third trimester, so she is more than six months along. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, how many of us men here this morning would say, under all these conditions, uh, uh, dear, I think it's time for us to take a trip. I don't think that we would do that. But you would, if you were decreed to do so by Caesar Augustus, whether your wife is pregnant or not. I love what my old professor Tom Constable says, human decrees, however powerful, fall under and within the divine decree. And can everybody say amen to that this morning? Absolutely. You see, God was moving. And so off Joseph and Mary go, as difficult and as hard as this trip was, and we cannot be certain that she rode on a donkey. Uh, We believe that was possible, but we do not know. It may have been that she walked along with her husband. This was a hard, hard trip, but God had moved them. And then verse 4 is very important because it says that this trip and ultimately this birth fulfilled two very important prophecies. Let me give you the first one. This is 2 Samuel 7. Verses 12 to 16, and I want you to notice what God said to David about his household, his lineage, and his coming kingdom. Let me read it for you. David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. That's clearly Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established. And what's the last word? For ever. This is the Davidic covenant promised to David. What house does the birth narrative say Joseph was from? David. God is now fulfilling a 1,000-year-old promise. How many of us would agree God keeps His promises? Even a thousand years later. And then another prophecy is set in motion. Here's one that we are more familiar with at Christmas time, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now this is a 700 year old promise, and I want you to notice the question. What will Messiah be like? And what's the answer that's given there? Ordinary background. So we have an insignificant couple going to a small town in a small country. The manger fulfills the intent of God's prophecy about smallness and ordinariness. God is behind these events moving to the manger. Now let's notice another third God-directed event. God filled up every room in Bethlehem to bring Jesus to the manger. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now the Greek word here for inn is a very flexible word. Uh, What it does not refer to is a hotel with an innkeeper who meets the couple at the door and says the hotel is filled and therefore I am turning you out. None of that is indicated here by what Luke says. Rather, the word in here means uh, one of two things. Uh, A guest room in a private home or a public shelter that would have been used for caravans traveling through. And it becomes very clear here, since these were all full due to many travelers, animal shelters were the only things that were left, and this would have been a crude uh, stable, or even a cave that sometimes might have been behind a home and was used to shelter animals. Now, all of us know that newborn babes cannot be held by their mothers all the time. You just can't do that. You don't hold them 24-7. And so the feeding trough in the stable or the shelter for the animals became the crib where Jesus laid. Uh, Pastor Kent Hughes helps us to see the imagery here. It's interesting that Luke doesn't go into any of these details, but let me share them with you. Most likely, what the circumstance was like. Writes Pastor Hughes, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries from Mary. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made it contemptible. Now, Luke, very interestingly, describes none of that. 
Instead, the ironic twist that God's Messiah was born among animals. Now, look again what we see. Clearly the God who directed Caesar's decree, the God who fulfilled prophecies hundreds and thousands of years old, determined this detail as well. God is the one who brought them at the very time every room was full so that Jesus would be laid in the manger. This is the sign. This is the sign. Well, now, as we think about all of this, what is God trying to teach us? And so we move from what is clear, that God is in control, that God is moving these events, God is preparing, and now we ask the simple question, what is the meaning of the manger? And this morning, I want to give to us three answers that I think the Lord is teaching us at this time as we celebrate Christmas. Here's the first one. Jesus humbled Himself to be our Savior. I think that's the first thing we see. Clearly, these crude, rude surroundings project lowliness. They project humility. How many of you noticed the downward trajectory of the events? If we could diagram the downward trajectory of the events, we would very clearly see what's going on here. In verse 1, we begin, Augustus Caesar and this mighty, powerful man who's considered a God and a Savior, he sends out a decree. And by the time we're done with the birth narrative, here is Jesus Christ who is laid in a manger. It was clearly a leap down. Nothing could be lower for God's Messiah. We cannot help, as we look at this, see the explanation in Philippians 2, 5-8. through 8. I mean, this gives us the meaning of the manger. Let's read it together. Would you join me? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the meaning of the manger, isn't it? What do earthly kings do? They push themselves up. What did Jesus do? He pushed Himself down. He pushed Himself down. 
Now, I think you know there's a second lesson that flows then out of this. And that is, Jesus saves those who humble themselves, right? If we have a Savior who had to humble Himself then to come to that Savior, we have to humble ourselves. Would you turn over to Luke chapter 18 for just a moment? And I want to read for you a parable that Jesus is the uh, that Luke is the only one who records. And I find it very interesting. This parable, only recorded by Luke, is found in his gospel where we learn this lesson about the manger. And look with me at verse nine, and let me read the parable for you. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke is the only one to record this parable. Why? Well, it's consistent with his emphasis on the poor, the outcast, and the needy who come to Jesus in his gospel. And just as Jesus had to humble himself to save, so Luke is telling us through the parable of Jesus, we must humble ourselves to be saved. We must do away with pride, self-righteousness, boasting about our own goodness. And we must humbly come to the foot of the cross and ask for mercy. Do you see what the manger says? We must be humble enough to admit we need a Savior born in a barn. May I ask, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever recognized my self-righteousness will never avail? My goodness my helpfulness to other people, my attempts to be a law-abiding, upstanding citizen, all of that in the eyes of God will never avail. I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior who humbled Himself and was born in a manger to show me 
that I must humble myself. See, that's clearly the message here. It's clearly the message. But then we want to take it one step further. If you are a Christian here today and you know the Savior, and you have humbled yourself and come to Him in repentance and in faith and trust alone, here's the third thing that the manger signifies. Jesus shows us by the manger the path of discipleship. Now would you think about this for just a moment? If we humble ourselves to come to the Savior, then we must continue to humble ourselves to follow the Savior. Doesn't that make sense? Right? If we humble ourselves to come to the Savior, then we must continue to humble ourselves to follow the Savior. That's why a proud Christian, an arrogant Christian, is a contradiction in terms. The manger teaches us humility is the path of discipleship. It's interesting, right before this chapter, we have Mary's Magnificat. And I want you to go back to Luke chapter 1 for just a moment. And you know Mary's praise song. And one of the questions that naturally comes to anybody thinking about the birth narrative of Jesus is why was Mary chose to be the mother of our Savior? And I want you to notice that two times she described her condition as a humble estate. Look at verse 48 of the Magnificat. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And then in case we didn't get the point as to why she was chosen, Mary brings it up again in verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, the Caesar Augustuses, and He has exalted those of humble estate. Say, do you not think it's appropriate that a humble Savior would be born to a humble mother? Don't you think that that exactly fits? And then she gives all the glory to God. Look at verse 49. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And when she heard the message of her pregnancy, back in verse 38, what did she say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know what we see here? This is the path of discipleship. Lord, You've done everything. I've done nothing. You deserve all the glory. I am Your servant. Let it be to me according to Your Word, even if it means a stable, a manger, and a cross. You see? The manger is the path to discipleship.
do all of us here this morning are gathered? Have we come this way to the Savior? In a moment, if you're not sure that Christ is your Savior, you are a child of God, and you belong to His family, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to Him today. But then if we have come to Him, are we following this lowly, meek, humble path of submission to the Savior in our daily lives? That's what the manger is all about. I love this quote from a pastor of years gone by that is attached to the prophecy of Micah 5.2. So many of us are not big enough to become little enough to be used by God. And we never grow out, outgrow the meaning of the manger, do we? We never do. It's always, always our need. Let's bow together for just a moment this morning. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you are not here by accident today. If the God who could move all these events to bring Jesus to a manger is the God that we believe is alive and well today, then you are not here by accident. He has moved you to be in this church this morning that you might hear His Word and His invitation. And if you are not certain that you belong to Jesus and you have the assurance of eternal life, and you know your sins have been forgiven. And you know without a shadow of a doubt, if you were to die today, the Savior would take you to your heavenly home. You can know that. You can be sure of it. And I just extend to you in the quietness of your heart, say, Lord, I believe the truth about Jesus. I'm convinced what the Bible says about Him is, is true. And I also know what the Bible says about me is true. I'm not righteous enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not sinless enough. I admit that.
And right now I turn from my own way. I, I repent of the path I've been following. And I come to Jesus at the foot of the cross. And Lord Jesus, in simple faith, simple heartfelt faith, I invite You to be my Savior. I trust You today. Be my Savior from sin. And be the Lord of my life. Give to me the eternal life that You came to purchase by Your death and resurrection. Forgive me the totality of my sins, past, present, and future. And bring me into the family of God. And Lord Jesus, coming in this humble way, I will continue to follow You humbly, submissively, obediently. I will say with Mary, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to Your Word. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for saving me. And then for those of us who are confident of our salvation, where is that tiny bit of pride that has crept in? Where is that arrogance? Where is that stubborn treatment of others? Where is that failure to demonstrate in our deeds the meekness that comes from wisdom? Having begun in the lowly place, is there some place in my marriage, in my family, where I work, here in the church, where I have exalted myself in a way that is inconsistent with being a follower of Christ. And today, whatever the Holy Spirit would put His finger on in our lives, may we let Him have His way that we might get back on the path of the Jesus way which is the way of the manger. Lord, there's something here for all of us today. I pray for that soul today who is uncertain about whether they are truly children of God. And I pray that what has been recorded for us will speak deeply into their hearts and show them their need and bring them today to salvation. 
Father, I, I pray for the rest of us today. And Are there things that need to be mended? Because we have exalted ourselves. Have you lowered us today because you are teaching us through those low circumstances that you want to soften us and make us pliable and make us meek enough so that you can use us? And how appropriate as we come to the communion table today and remember Philippians chapter 2 and the trajectory that Jesus took all the way down that we would allow you by your Spirit to teach us once again to be like Him and let Him have His way that we might be more and more conformed to the image of God's dear Son. We love you. We have so much cause for thanksgiving and praise. May it come today from the depths of our hearts. And thank you that you first loved us. For Jesus' sake, Amen.